Hello and welcome to Cinephils episode, well, it, uh, let's see, uh, take 26. I forgot how we do these things now. It's been so long. Um, so take 26 and uh, uh, it's 2024. And I guess this is our, well, we started about a year ago, didn't we? Yeah, you came at me with this idea uh, like last, like December of 2022. And then 2023, we recorded some really uh some podcasts where the audio was where <laughs> it was a learning curve. It was Let's the tin can and paper string, uh, a tin can yeah. and string approach uh, to the audio, and now we've graduated to uh, you know landlines. Yeah. So. yeah, yeah. Now we've there was marginal improvement, and we're still doing it. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, welcome to the new year. Yeah, to start us off. Um, yeah. For this year, uh, we're going to talk about two Wes Anderson's films. So you you had um, it was your duty to suggest one, and then I threw one into the mix just to complicate things. So you yeah. raised Grand Budapest Hotel, and I raised that uh, the Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou, um, because that's a movie that I have a, a thing for. So. Um, Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> so let's let's get started. Uh, Just before we get started, uh, to sure. our listeners, we're not like we are on the A's, but we're not doing this alphabetically. It's not like we spent the last 25 episodes just going through the A's and we got to Anderson now. Um, we, we jump around. Um, so but anyway, and maybe next week, I don't know. Well, well that's yeah. fortunate because it. We'll be in trouble with some of those Andersons. Right. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And uh, well, what did you uh, think of them, David? What, what should we talk about first? Uh, should we do well, you want to do it chronologically and then we'll, so we'll, we'll do Steve's yeah. first. Just to get yeah, that, that makes sense. Away. Yeah. Yeah. I know this hey. movie isn't everybody's cup of tea. Um, I, my wife hates it. <laughs> I, I love it. And I watch it every couple of years um Wes Anderson so, I mean most of us got into Wes Anderson about 20 years 20 years ago I guess with um his debut hit well he had a couple of uh, uh right in a row um the the first was um with J- John, uh, Schwartzman um and it was a sort of revenge flick what was that called again do you remember it no, I don't. Honestly, I'm not that super keen on it. On, uh, I don't know that much about Wes Anderson. I don't know as much as I should know. Honestly, so it, was, um, it it was sort of an intro for uh, a lot of people. There was Bottle Rocket first, but that didn't do very well, and then Rushmore, that one, mm-hmm. uh, which introduced uh, J- Jason Schwartzman to us. Um, and, and there's uh, the Tannenbaums in there. Yeah, the there? Tannenbaums became a big commercial success. So I'd say Rushmore was a sort of indie success. Yeah. Um, okay. And that, that also utilized Bill Murray. So that was, um, you know, beginning of a long collaboration. Yeah, yeah it was. Uh, I just looked up his film filmography. It was Bottle Rocket, Rushmore, Tannenbaums, Zizou. Uh, did the Desjardins Limited, right? Fantastic Mr. Fox, Moonrise Kingdom, Budapest in four, 2014, and then then is more recent stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. there's a couple of things. So I, I I don't I wouldn't say he's my favorite um, director, um, but he's done some interesting work, and and there's something about his work that strikes me now that I've I've gone back and watched uh, a couple of those just during the holidays because um because I missed him. Um and I think Steve Sazu was his first kind of flop um after yeah. after the Rushmore was kind of a sleeper hit and then Royal Tenenbaums really got noticed. And then it, he kind of flopped with Steve Sazu. But yeah. Um, on, every time I watch it I, I seem to like it more and maybe there's something wrong with me. Uh, but uh it's it is something about what Anderson does that is actually what interests me. Um, he is he's a, he's almost exactly my age, so he's fifty four. He was born a couple months after me, and every, every time I see his films, it's like uh, taking a time machine back somehow to my childhood. Yeah, um, yeah, that's uh, like. 
As I, I'm not as familiar with Wes Anderson as you are. Uh, this was my first time watching Life Aquatic. I haven't watched uh, some of his other films like uh, Mr. Fox. Uh, I haven't seen Isle of Dogs uh, either. Um, I quite like him, but he's uh, not like one of my awesome, awesome, awesome directors. Like I like him because he's sort of... <laughs> I thought I liked him because he's sort of whimsical. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, like, from Asteroid City uh, and uh, Tenenbaums. But then I realized, watching uh, Life Aquatic, that there's something more going on here. And then it caused me to re- to rewatch uh, Budapest Hotel. And it's like, okay, so he's more than just whimsical. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it's like... And he's more than just uh, this deep cut irony that seems to be associated with the hipsters uh perhaps wrongly you know like like this apathetic like apathetic irony uh going on there's more to it than that too but that's like one of the things like about zizu that i liked and i didn't like like, like this really deadpan irony that read almost like apathy like you know like like yeah. a curse a cursory reviewing and it's like why are these characters so lacking in affect um you know is it just bad acting is it and then it's like well no that doesn't seem right um, you know, like, like, yeah like angela houston yeah she's a terrible hack of a, you know like, you know you know jeff no Goldberg. and why did all these fantastic yeah. uh, actors yeah, keep right in his films right right yeah like and it's like okay so there's something else going on here there and uh, and then it's like what did what are the some of the things that like were particularly obvious about uh, Zizu that I liked the the movie uh, um, is that or is that it made me think of Jacques Cousteau. I remember yeah. as a child watching um, the various Jacques Cousteau uh, television documentary series that he had, and like some of those shots, I didn't go back and check this seemed profoundly like I was watching this and it's like, I saw that 30 years ago. I'm yeah. sure I've seen this 30 years ago. Like, and it was looking at the weird sort of animals through the portal of uh, the submersible. And it's like, I think, yeah, that was uh, the opening credit. That was part of the opening credits to the Jacques Cousseau's things. And it's like, okay, so what is this? This is nostalgia. Yeah. I feel, you know, like this is, this is, there's irony, there's apathy here, there's a, a sharp social critique, and there's also a real, oh, a boatload of nostalgia, which I quite liked. And then it's like, when I'm like, oh yes, it makes me feel nostalgic for like being like 10 years old watching, I don't know if it was on like CBS or C or ABC, you know, these. ABC, I think I was watching. Yeah, yeah like the, yeah, I think it was, I'm thinking Sunday night, but I could be wrong yeah. there, you know, and it's like, yeah, it brings me back to that. And that's kind of cool. And, and it yeah. is an homage, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that, so having had his successes with Rushmore and Tenenbaum, I think he decided to do something that would please him. Mm-hmm. As many directors do at a certain point of success, right? They they start to make the movies they they want to make and maybe don't care so much about how the public reacts. And the uh, studio gives them the freedom to do so. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think that sometimes directors can do their best work when they're unconstrained by the, you know, the fears of a, a, a flop, uh, which which this was. And he continued to make movies, although uh, I'm sure that um, the studios um, uh, punished him somehow. Um, but there's a so it is a, it does just rekindle for me that feeling. And it was Sunday nights. When I was watching two things on TV, it was the Jacques Cousteau specials um, and the um, Mutual of Omaha, um, the Animal Kingdom stuff, where you'd see these, you know, grainy 35 millimeter documentaries from the field, uh, you know, chasing these 
um, animals, these rare animals and um, getting them on film. And it was just magical for me um, to see both. Um, of course, I'm landlocked and landlocked more or less. And uh, the beginning of the American Midwest and <clears throat> and um, seeing all this ocean stuff is fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah, I do. And that that, that was a mutual of Omaha. Wild Kingdom. Wild Kingdom with Lauren Green, who was yep. I remember that too. Yeah, like wearing wearing khaki khaki before khaki was cool. You yeah. know, like and it was just like awesome. I, I I loved it. And like, yes, I was growing up in Saskatchewan where there isn't a significant body of water for about like four thousand kilometers in no in either direction. Right. Uh you know, like and it was it was great. Um it was a whole new world, um, which is, you know, so there's, there's, <laughs> uh, anyways, there's, uh, there's these, uh, that's a good reference too. Um, so there were the, there are these things about that time that I also recall that I see him weave into his works. Um, one of the ways people like you and I write these landlocked geeks, right. Who are interested in, well, I don't mean to presume that you're a geek at that point. Um, no, I was, I was dysfunctional, but anyway, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I, I had two other things that I, you know, these were sort of escapes for me besides these regular shows where we actually had to be in front of a TV at a certain time to watch uh -huh. them. Um, and you know, they didn't go to the theater. So that was, that was your shot at it. Um, but also mm -hmm. I had these, um, sort of pop-up books <laughs> and I had yeah. Viewmasters. Yeah. Those, the aesthetics of pop-up books and Viewmasters are woven into the fabric of every Wes Anderson film I've seen. The sort yeah. of vibrant colors, sort of sepia hue sometime or sort of faded hues. And this was true for Asteroid City, which is a totally washed out color palette, yeah. too. But you have um, not and he, can, he does. I think this is actually a bit of genius on his part to capture not just the, you know, the the sense of it in in the the, um, the visuals, et cetera, but also the the even minor details of the aesthetic. So Viewmaster, if you remember these things that you know, Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I and that's was addicted like, to those. I was always watching those things. And yeah. If you look and at them, they yeah, are theirs. artificial, right? Yeah. The the setups are very artificial. They're not like lifelike. They are um vibrantly colorful and somewhat you know, clearly there are models in a lot of these and um, yes, that whole aesthetic is is the same to me. So when I wa I was wondering to myself, what was wrong with you? Why do you keep watching these films and getting all choked yeah. up, you know, and and I would I would suggest that it's not there's not a, as much irony in it as the hipsters think there is. Um, mm. And I think he's rather yeah. genuinely nostalgic for that stuff of our childhood um, and that that these are as ways to capture it. And I think the character of Steve Sazu is a clue. So maybe we elaborate. Tell yeah, me more. <laughs> a little bit about that film. So it's a it's it's not just a you know, pastiche to tell a sort of Jacques Cousteau thing about. But we see this guy in, you know, the near the end of his career, who is himself nostalgic and regretful mm -hmm. um, that somehow he botched things up long ago um, that, you know, somehow and, and, and who then becomes made aware through the this relationship with his fake son. Right. Um, mm -hmm. um, played by. Um, Owen Wilson. Owen Wilson, right. One of the Wilson brothers, right. Owen yeah. Wilson. Um, and his uh, best friend, right, who he sort of betrays, played by um, other, no, all the names have gone. Was that <laughs> Bud Corp? Willem, Willem Dafoe. Oh, Willem Dafoe is who you're talking about. Okay, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so there is a betrayal in there. There's a couple of betrayals. And then I think it all kind of circles back and we see this, this character grow. 
a little. Not much, but grow. And I don't think it's ironic. So I think Rushmore had a lot of irony in it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Royal Tenenbaums too, but I think Steve Zazu was the first time I start to see a genuine, um, thoughtful critique of superficial superficiality, things like hubris and ego um, that also then I think are, are even more <clears throat> critiqued in, in Grand Bud- Budapest Hotel as we'll talk about later. But yes. I think this is, a, this is a turning point in Anderson's emotional uh, intelligence somehow. That, that's my take on it. The story doesn't hardly matter. <laughs> there's just, I mean, there's a number of misadventures and there's a wonderful use of these um, um, backdrops and models and miniatures and stuff that are reminiscent of these pop-up books to me. Um, but what's interesting to me is that Bill Murray, who had, I think at about that time, he'd started to be able to do this with characters, including, well, I thought Groundhog Day, uh, was, was insightful. Um, and he played that character insightfully. Um, and he does that then in, 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 I think, um, lost in translation as well. So, yeah. Um, I guess like there's like, what is the, what is Zizu's problem, uh, is, uh, one way I, I kind of access the film. Um, what is his character arc or what, like, what's the character arc going on with him? Because, you know, you're right. The story doesn't really matter and it's not like so what does matter and if it and the cinematography is cool but it's in service of something Mm -hmm. um so for me it was okay well maybe it's a character and he's he's dealing with a fundamental question of authenticity he recognizes like from the opening scene like where his documentary i guess his most recent documentary i forget which one it was was panned like nobody liked it you know and and he's up that's the one about the shark the jaguar shark yeah jaguar shark yeah the first episode right yeah 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 and uh, yeah like and it's panned and uh the audience i believe does even suggest that it's fake Mm -hmm. and uh then yeah that's the first question and then from then on then they try to ask him well what are you why did you not show the jaguar shark you know like trying to give him a lot a way out trying to make him into a great artist or cinematographer and um he says i dropped the camera and then he realizes i think with that that he's an inauthentic hack Mm -hmm. um he's not a scientist he's not uh Aquanaut. Um, he's a guy who has a, a crew in matching jumpsuits and two failed marriages and um, no friends. And, right. you, you know, and then he's he I think he recognizes that very clearly, um, like all after like we're, we're talking the first two sequences of the movie. And then he, I think he's throughout the movie extricate becoming authentic yeah like this yeah. is this is why i think it's a it's a really it's a it's a transformational um picture in in uh, the the wes anderson uh oeuvre yeah uh, but then and, to get and, to the end i think in, in opposition to his character also this jeff goldblum character this yeah. like famous he's got all the trappings of success Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, he was the ex-husband of his soon-to-be next ex-wife, yes. uh, and um, yes. just, but also totally inauthentic. This this guy, yeah, is you know plastic and uh, um, you know all basic all the commercial appeal with none of the emotion. Yeah. He, he's um, he's he's Steve Zizu 
all over again, except he gets all the grant money. Right. Uh, you know, like there, yeah. there isn't too much difference at all between these characters. And right. you get that because it's like, yes, Jeff Goldblum was uh, Steve Zizou's uh, or Angela Houston's uh, husband first off. And then, you know, like, yeah, they're, they are uh, repetitions of the same general thing with accidental differences Jeff Goldblum has better hair, he's taller, and he has more money. And um, that's about it. Um, You know, they even use the same espresso machine. Yeah. Uh, They stole it from him, so. Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) If he didn't. Um, but, you know, it occurs to me that uh, one of the authors of this screenplay was Noam Baumbach, um, too, yeah. who also uh, helped write the most recent Asteroid City um, yeah. collaboration. And I think that Baumbach is a good influence for Anderson. Um, I particularly love Baumbach's movie, The Squid and the Whale, um, which if you haven't seen, you you should um and and he is i think he is in touch with all of these sorts of um notions you know, sort of the in the the attack on inauthentic authenticity the um the you know the the need to reflect on even relations with women so um what one of the things that's you know, I mean, Zizou is clearly a, a misogynist, as as I'm sh- as many in, in this that generation uh, were, um, and um, the most sane people in this film are the Kate Blanchett's character and um, you know um, Houston's Angelica Houston's. The, the rest of these boys are just playing around with their. You know, yeah, yeah, jumpsuits and yeah, and gadgets, uh, and the and these these two grounded, um, and and finally Zazu, who I think most of all doesn't want to end up alone, um, so he sort of fake adopts this Owen um, Wilson character, uh, Ned Plimpton. <laughs> I love that yeah. his name is Plimpton, um, and uh, you know. Uh, and and goes through this whole Oedipal thing with the the Kate Blanchett triangle there, yeah. Who has no interest in him, by the way. So that right. I think I think it's a it's a it's a shame that the and I think the problem is people got used to the sort of the irony and the uh, whimsy maybe of Rushmore and Tannenbaum, and then they didn't take this film in the same light, and so they they reject it. Yeah, uh, that's possible. But but like we we need to remember, like irony is like the most deep, the deep seated of forms of critique, like like Socrates, Kierkegaard sort of thing. So like, you know, I guess like the irony here is like a really it's it's a profound criticism. Like and you get like and it does go hand in glove with uh authenticity becoming more aware of i guess how i was thinking of it becoming more aware becoming more authentic does not go does not imply becoming less ironic okay yeah 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 like um it's just uh yeah but it's the sort of detached irony right yes of of the sort of um and i would say rushmore has that Mm, yes, uh, that yeah. that this this movie avoids. Um, yeah. it moves us. I think it moves me, mm-hmm. uh, and and I find to be insightful. Right, but there is a lot of detachment in this movie still. Like uh, to me, like I guess, like the violence scenes, like how how it's dealt with, how the hijackers are dealt with. Like one of the hijackers, uh, I think the one who gets killed. Uh, has the what is clearly a Halloween uh, Halloween Walmart uh, pirates sword. It was plastic, yeah. you know, and and just the the almost Quentin Tarantino esque nineteen seventies 
shot on his face where he gets angry and breaks the ropes and then manages to kill the hat or scare mm-hmm. off all the hijackers by shooting a uh, hundred rounds out of a 45 calorie or a nine millimeter, you right. know, without changing the clip and all that whole thing profound. Like it was, it was, there was no way you could be in engaged in that this wasn't cinema verite this was clearly a caricature uh of what well all action scenes are caricatures uh, yeah but there's, uh, there's there's a real lack of realism in yes. all the films let's face it realism yeah. is now what's important um, yeah and one thing i did want to another thing that we could critique or that i think uh Wes Anderson is critiquing in this movie is uh, colonialism and uh, you know like with the two instances like with one the Citron Hotel uh, that is now uh, bankrupt but like what like isn't that an auto company or something I, Citron yeah. yeah 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 it's a French automobile it's a French auto company yeah I'm not even sure if they're still... Doesn't it mean lemon or something like that? I don't know. Yes, yeah, but I think they were... Like, I think that was, like, the auto company hotel. Oh, okay. Like, the same way that uh, in America and in Canada... Well, in America, they have, like, the... The... AAA hotels that, back in the day, were really awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, like and it and they were like luxury resorts that for back in the day for the middle class. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I think that's what the Citron Hotel was. It was like yeah. one of these things, except it it failed. Um and showing it to, to fail, like to me was a deep or a pretty direct criticism of uh, colonialism insofar as like, yes, here is capitalism that has come to this pristine place uh, to set up a ridiculous hotel. And it's now fallen into ruin and Filipino hijackers um, use it, (laughs) you know, like, and uh, it's, it's been reclaimed by the, by the indigenous uh, population as a hideout, Um, you know, and then there was, then there was the character who always played the guitar. Yeah, he didn't. Yeah, he didn't have a line in the movie that I like of dialogue. Right. You know, all Portuguese, right? Yeah. Yeah. All he's doing is sitting there playing a guitar playing what were mainly not all, yeah not all David Bowie but mainly David Bowie songs yeah. in his in Portuguese yeah uh, which sounded very very beautiful but like uh, there is this like he's the only black guy in the movie you yeah. know like like and that is that is like honestly a deep cut against uh Jacques Jacques Cousteau, you know, like, and this whole, and let's face it, also uh, the Lauren Green. uh, Wild Kingdom, yeah, I was thinking the same thing, right? So they're they're all heart of darkness, right? So the the white guy taking pictures in this beautiful, pristine world where... Yeah, and he's going to educate everybody. Like and like, I don't want to slam Lauren Green because he was uh, he was an that was an amazing show. But like, there is like this sort of you know, Joseph Conrad Heart of Darkness thing going yeah. on there. You know, yeah, like, I think this is fair as as an implicit presupposition uh, right. of the producers, um, not necessarily of, not of Lauren Green and not of Jacques Cousteau. Um, you know, but. And I think Wes Anderson, by showing that, is launching that critique on a pretty. I, I pretty do believe deep so, level. and I, I think that so. There's, there's, it's more evident with his 
um, approach to the female characters, the women in the movie, um, directly confronting the misogynism of the lead male characters. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I think uh, Anderson is 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 aware and has uh, attempted to um, reflect upon these prejudices in some way without without you know totally blowing apart the whole conceit too which yes. is you know we're in the middle of these shows of some sort yeah exactly and like the unnamed the unnamed mediterranean location like there, so i'm glad you raised yeah. the music because i also wanted to call attention to mark mothersburg's soundtrack <laughs> Yeah. which is all sort of um, 8-bit uh, synthesizer mm-hmm. stuff. Of course, Mark Mothersburg of Devo, who's also mm-hmm. been pretty prolific for scoring movies. Um, I just, I love this this soundtrack. I, watching it, you know, um, the music makes me, again, it makes me reflect upon that that era, and I feel like I'm you know, watching a Viewmaster with my Devo tracks going in the background or something. Absolutely. That that music, sort of simple 8-bit synthesizer music. Yeah, and it's wonderful that you bring up Devo too, because like, again, they were a total critique of what was going on, you know, in society at the time. Like they were not a bunch of uh, people, they weren't the monkeys. Uh, they they were they were engaging in a serious critique of society, and when like their like their biggest hit, I think, is Whip It, uh, which they were horrified that it became a hit because yeah. they were going they were nobody understood. It's like, the song is not what you think it is about. I guarantee you, you know, <laughs> like, and, uh, yeah. And I think, and even from their outfits, it's like, this is all just a, yeah, a substantive critique. So, and yes, it couldn't, it's elevate. It's, it's in the music, but at the same time, I'm listening to the music the, and I'm like, this is really enjoyable. And it does harken back to, I don't remember the the soundtrack to uh, uh, Jacques Cousteau, but I couldn't. But I can imagine him listening to something like this. You so, know, uh, I mean, yeah. most of these documentaries, they just got yeah. some because um, they were so poorly funded. They just bought yeah. off the shelf um, canned um, uh, soundtracks you could put over anything. So you see, you hear a lot of these same soundtracks. If you go to like, if you went to like the planetarium or something yeah. before they became well funded or, you know, any of those sort of educational things, um, you'd hear that kind of music and it was very simplistic, but it was fun. Yes, it was. Uh, yeah. And uh, it was Final nod to yeah. Willem Dafoe, who I just love in that oh, yeah. Of Klaus Daimler. I think he just um, he just eats it up and brings, again, some real emotion to it. We see through his adoration Mm -hmm. of Zizou and how Zizou treats him. Um, I think we see um, how bad, (laughs) you know, Zizou is and that and it's and it's more or less that um relationship that i, I think Suzu and and with owen wilson which just met of course but that mm-hmm. he starts to change in some way right and like yeah it's uh it's you can't say there's one thing that made him change it was sort of a constellation of things yeah. but yes uh willem dafoe uh was a key figure in it and you just see how profoundly needy he is now uh, the character um without it was super it was superlative he's a very very emotionally needy character because he's been horribly abused by steve zazu for decades now right. uh and uh, that was real really interesting uh how yeah. well willem dafoe sold that and specifically i'm thinking of the one scene where he it was shortly before owen wilson's character before the ill-fated helicopter voyage um where willem dafoe was like i love the the flag what you did to the flag and uh 
Like that was a real moment of authentic, uh, a really yeah. sweet moment. But then again, then again, you get this this irony at the end where you actually see the flag because, like the way it's described in that conversation between Defoe's character and Owen Wilson's character, it's like you're you're imagining some magnificent flag, like some whole reworking of the flag like changing it into something awesome and as it turns out uh, all owen wilson did was like sew four patches on each of the quarters and it's like wow that's uh wow that's uh that's um interesting design choice revolutionary i think um, steve jobs wouldn't have been very impressed with that i don't know uh you know uh, but his character ned is so genuine oh yeah well, he's, a, uh, he's simple he's a yeah, genuine he's a, guy and, and just yeah. so open and i mean yeah he, he's it's it's funny but it's also you know, touching, as you said. Oh, oh yeah. Like, yeah, he is. A, he, he's an airline pilot, pilot for Air Kentucky. And it's like. Air Kentucky, I love it. Yeah, like, if you know anything about Kentucky, it's like, okay. Uh, like, so this is like the airline of Kentucky. You can drive across Kentucky in an afternoon. You know, like, it's, it's like, why, what sort of airline does Air Kentucky, could Air Kentucky be? Right. <laughs> And then he and then he did mention how he does is this a throwaway line, how he does do the flights between two places in Kentucky. And it's like that that must be like maybe not the world's shortest flight, but um close to it. And he uh, just leaves it to go on this adventure. Yeah. Uh, right. Go with somebody who isn't even really his dad. And he did, right? it's just delightful. I find yeah. it delightful. Yes. Uh, well, shall we move to um our other one, uh, yeah. the Grand Budapest. So tell me what, why you chose this one. Uh, because it was, it struck me as whimsical, like the first time I saw it. And I think this was like the first Wes Anderson movie I saw uh, consciously. And then I went back and watched other Wes Anderson movies. Um and I saw it in the theater and I loved the colors and everything about the movie. Um, it was it was more than just a new shiny thing when I saw the movie that made me like it, although the new shiny thing aspect should not be discounted. The colors, the color palette in this movie, the cinematography, infatuate i would became infatuated with it on first glance it's like uh, it was like looking at to me it's like looking at fovis paintings where it's like wow the colors here are cool you know mm-hmm. and um and then beyond that the acting was incredible uh throughout i, I don't think there's anybody in this movie who does a bad bad job uh, who does even a kind of bad job. I think they all do excellent jobs. Then uh, the other thing that really attracted me to this movie, I this movie deals with some really dark material, a really dark period in human history. Uh, and I think that the way, the way this, and I'm, I find that period of history interesting. I, I find what cinema was, how cinema responds to that to be very interesting I, because you got like everything from Night in the Fog uh, to shitty American raw, raw movies about it, you know, to much more somber uh like Italian neorealism attempts to to hit on it. And I find all of these approaches are really interesting. Like it's like, well, I just said, I just called one of them shitty, but uh, so they're not all really interesting. I find how different directors approach them. profound human trauma uh, worth taking a look at and 
this movie, I thought, approached it in a very sensitive way. Mm-hmm. Um, surprisingly, because like the movie made me laugh. It made me feel nostalgic for something that I wasn't alive for. Uh, it made me it 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 made me have all sorts of affects. And uh, I thought that was really at the end of it. I was like, just how I was moved by it. It's like this was good cinema. And then that caused me to uh, rewatch it a couple times. And uh, that's sort of, so that's why I suggested it. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and also because like, yeah, I might've mentioned this. It approaches a really dark period in history, but it didn't make me feel like, Oh, I don't know. Night in the fog right. uh, may, makes me feel, you know, like where it's like, oh, my God, I just want to slip my wrists now. You know, whereas this was like, OK, I actually have some hope mm-hmm. uh, and uh, even and the characters here. I feel good about them <laughs> for okay. the most part. Yeah. So that's why I liked it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, no, I, I, I have similar feelings about it. And, uh, I think it's one of his most successful efforts, um, in many ways. I thought actually Asteroid City fell flat. I was disappointed by that. Um, unfortunately, um, something about it, um, didn't work for me. Um, but this, uh, again, it, it approaches a really s- sort of sensitive time, um, mm-hmm. But it tells human stories uh, that, and again, it's a, this this harken back to a Rushmore for me in a sense because you have this sort of mentor mentee. But he does that in many of his films. So even Ned and Steve Zissou are in that sort of relationship. That's the, yeah, that's the structure of their relationship. Right. If it if it becomes actual, if it becomes actualized in a way that anybody would like no but it, that is the structure going on there it's a father-son thing right uh, yeah and, and here um you know gustav is admirable in every way for me mm-hmm. so gustav is the ray fines um, yeah. uh character and i just think he is perfect in this role it's a role he's born to play and he's sort of the superhero of concierges. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure I'm saying that poorly. Concierge. Whatever. Yeah. Concierge. Uh, I have my American accent. I'm sorry. Whatever. Um, <laughs> it works for me. Uh, I can't say it correctly either. <laughs> right? yeah. But he's, he's remarkable in every way. He's perfect in his job. He takes... And we don't know how much of this is zero... Um, embellishing in reflection because this is all told as a tale in the modern day. To, I think to Jude Law, wasn't? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, a, yeah, yeah. I think so. But it's it, it's clear that Zero loves this Gustav character and admires him with every fiber of his being and wants to be exactly like it. Yes, um, and we do too. I mean, he's he's skeezy okay so he is um probably uh using these old dowagers to um you know get money and affection but he's also providing affection to them and it seems like he's very genuinely he genuinely cares for them probably more than their families did uh at least uh with the the tilda swinton character it was mm-hmm. I think it was genuine love that he had for her. And I'm not, and, and it's also, there's some insinuation that he's also a homosexual, um, but that, you know, that doesn't matter for these relationships. These are, I think, genuine. And he really yeah, loves he, them. He, he, he's gender fluid, I think. And, yeah. and that, that much is uh, apparent, which I think drives home uh, you know, or brings out one theme that I think might exist in other Wes Anderson movies, the impossibility of its, of a successful father-son relationship. Uh, because, okay, in, give me a moment here, uh, like Zizou, okay, it's impossible that Zizou is Owen Wilson's father. We know right. that. 
uh, and the relationship just, but, but even if we take it as this, the simulacra of a fa- of a actual father son relationship that too fails it fails miserably because well kingsley dies um in um zizu in grand budapest hotel well there is between uh ray fine's character and the character named zero there is the impossible there's no way that uh ray finds is zero's dad we there's no way this is also impossible because of um racial differences because of age differences because of because they've because ray finds is uh certainly playing this as gender fluid and we know that he and as the movie plays out we know that he only is uh sleeping with women for the most part for money right uh and so zero couldn't be his son and then that relationship itself takes on they try to be father and son but it too doesn't really work out so i you have a similar structure going on with it where the common the conclusion from both movies is that a that a perfect father-son relationship is a complete fantasy mm-hmm. and so and i think that uh makes and it is like the title of this movie is it is the grand budapest hotel grand is in the title but at the heart of it you have just a family drama mm-hmm. like you know like the family drama of yeah. can there be a successful relationship between a father and a son i'm not saying that's all that's going on here, but yeah. it's an aspect of what's going on and i think that's really cool it um, is and I, but yeah. it is a theme with anderson yeah. films yeah yeah, yeah. Um, so this is something he's he's come back to time and again in this case there is one of the you know, one of the more one of the reasons that we can still like Gustav is that he's he has no intentions towards Zero's um, love interest, mm-hmm. uh, for instance, um, Agatha, yeah. the, the yeah. baker yeah. with the with the wonderful um, uh, birthmark that looks like Mexico on her face. Yes. Um, that nobody talks about. <laughs> so yeah. this is also wonderful. Uh, so. Yeah, she's she's got this um, outrageous birthmark. Nobody mentions that, which is fabulous. Um, and yeah, I think um, Anderson is good at this, at letting people be, you know, not exactly, um, you know, the model uh, uh, of beauty or whatnot. And and nobody re- reflects on it. Nobody even mentions it. It's not an element of the story. Yeah. Uh, but also there's no triangle issue there be, like there was with the Blanchette character and Zizou because Gustav is honorable yeah. um, and, and, and better than Steve Zizou ever was. Mm-hmm. Now, um, do you think that there's a, why didn't anybody comment on that? Because we shouldn't. Huh. Okay. I think. Um, yeah. At some, I'm not sure if it ever is mentioned at all in the movie. I don't think it is, and and it shouldn't be. I mean, in a, and Gustav knows this. He is a he is the model of a of, of a gentleman um, throughout the movie, and gentlemen don't talk about such things. And and zero is well. Um, served by that model as well. Um, Zero becomes a gentleman himself. And I mean this not in the sort of, I do mean in a sort of nostalgic uh, way. Um, This this isn't something you talk about. Um, It's not anybody's business. Hmm. Okay. Uh, I was wondering, like the movie is an, uh, a pretty explicit criticism of fascism and the emergence of fascism. Right. And then um, among the many horrible things that fascism did, and I don't, again, 
not to be overly reductive, but one of the things that fascism does is it fixates on appearances. Right. And uh, I, I was wondering if, like, specifically by not fixating on her skin, her what, what's going on with her skin, um, if that's like an explicit nod, it's like, yes, this is what non-fascists do yeah. uh you know you know well, like and, and that was with, yeah as with um um gustav's gender fluidity right none of yeah. that is going to be tolerated by these fascists obviously yeah. they're all going to be in trouble mm-hmm. yeah put and they they all know that even gustav knows that like on the train scene he knows that his his time is uh limited you know, like like his authority here will pretty soon be completely disregarded and he will be in Zero's place right alongside Zero, if not in a far worse place. Right. Uh, like that. That's. Yeah. In, explicit in those scenes and how and how Ray Fines does such an, an amazing job of portraying this. But, yeah, I do think there's like. There is this uh, critique of uh, this deep critique of fascism here, like uh, saying, "Okay, yes, who would care about her face? A fascist, right? Um, you know, and we don't. And fascists are bad. Uh, yeah. They are morally re- they are reprehensible in so so many ways, and I think." by explicitly not commenting because like there's no way somebody doesn't notice this right. of, of course they notice it just like they notice uh, ray finds gustav's uh gender fluidity uh just like they notice that um zero is uh, ethnicity yeah uh, is uh, like okay they notice, but it's irrelevant Right. <laughs> you know, like it's it's not even worth mentioning, whereas for the fascist, this is precisely how we are going to parse people and decide who goes to the death camps and who is who is holding the guns in the death camps. And this is the this is the precise way they that they did their determinations. But, um, and I find that it's really quite telling uh, how. Wes Anderson, as a filmmaker in this film, is playing around with that because, mm-hmm. like, he, like, there are shots in this movie which were Lenny Riefen style shots. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, like, there were, like, when the fascists had taken the hotel, um, the Grand Budapest Hotel, and just the camera angles. Like I'm talking, like these are these are camera angles that were first used by Lenny Riefenstahl in Triumph of the Will, right. and so and so Wes Anderson is clearly aware of this, uh, or this, and the cinematographer is clearly aware of this, um, and then Wes Anderson's doing that, and then on another, in other sequences of the movie, say explicitly saying. Yes, but I'm not engaging in fascist filmmaking. Uh, And I think like, you know, and I think that like that is something that's really amazing. Like, like, honestly, like amazing it. Because, you know, who doesn't do that? Jerry Bruckheimer. Yeah. Uh, You know, like, you know, like in. Like, it is good. I mean, there there is subtlety in this film, yeah. and 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 it's possible to make a point through a story without you know big explosions or hitting. No, but, well, there is an explosion, of course. But yeah, yeah. but I'm that. talking on a on a deeper level, uh, like on a filmmaker level, like you know okay. what he's like. So many putatively anti-fascist films are precisely using are precisely fascist because they're using fascist because every image is shot gotcha. yeah. from a fascist their technique like yeah like you say that uh, batman might be 
Well, or Zack Snyder is another great example. Well, he's like, oh, I'm not a fascist filmmaker because like my heroes are opposing the oppressors who are fashy. Um, Yet everything about his accent, like the camera setups, this is all the music. This is all fashy Um, where it's it's oppressive. It's murky. It's dark. Uh, Whereas. Wes Anderson here is saying, no, 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 I am critiquing the fascists and I'm so, so consistent in my critique that I am explicitly not using fascist filmmaking techniques or when I do, they are immediately undercut by substantive other elements of the film. And I think that's a great form of, uh, that's brilliant filmmaking. It is. Honestly, yeah. yeah. Um, it's self-aware filmmaking. It's not just it, putting it a is. camera here and saying, do stuff, guys. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Anderson is, is one of these directors, and I think the best directors always are, who, who loves film and is deeply versed in the, in, in the cinema um, and who has also been able to carve out for himself his own, um, you know, his own niche. Um, which some some uh, filmmakers are able to do. I think of David Lynch, who's also done that. Um, a couple others who, you know, um, David Cronenberg. Um, again, when you watch their films, you see, you know who you're watching. Um, they and they, but it's because you know, like Picasso had to be versed in the whole history of art to be able to create his own style. And, and I, I have to say, having watched Wes Anderson mature um, and I, maybe another time we'll talk about asteroid city, which I, I do think didn't quite do what it was capable of doing. Although it yeah, was I'm not sure about that. I, I've... Fascinating. It was fascinating. And, yeah. I, and I think he's at the point in his career where he's able to make movies and not give a shit what the audiences think. And then there's something mm-hmm. to be said for that. And I'm, I'm glad he's still doing that. Um, but I yes. watched it with my family who had no idea what was going on. Uh, so yeah, I, I might have to watch it a couple times uh, yeah. because like the first time I, I watched it and and I wasn't blown away. Uh, Asteroid City I'm talking about. Okay. Uh, but I would but I also was like, I think there's things going on here. I have to watch it again. And yeah, like, I'll probably do it again. Yeah, like, I don't know, maybe he's making some deep cut on the space race and the whole culture that developed there, you know, uh, with respect to that. Maybe he's doing the anti-Oppenheim or uh, in some ways the anti-Oppenheimer, but, um, you know, uh, which. Uh, and, yeah, I, I know Oppenheimer wasn't involved in the space race directly. I know, but uh, yeah, but um, uh yeah, so I wonder about uh, that. Yeah, I, and Chris, by the way, Chris Nolan is another great example of a director who says that he's explicitly anti-fascist, but employs fascist filmmaking techniques. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know. You, I, I. I am a. I'm a. I'll watch any any Nolan film. Um, but you're absolutely right. I think um, so. But they can't help it. I mean, that, that's why they get the big bucks. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose. Um, yeah. yeah. Tarkovsky. He never employed fascist filmmaking techniques. But anyway. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. But, but he never had the big bucks uh, funded right. by Moss Film. Uh, you know, like. Uh, right. Um is there anything uh, about Grand, Bud- Grand Budapest Hotel uh, that uh, really, really like was a, so a moment? I, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I can't think of any particular pivotal thing for me other than the, again, the use of miniatures and um, backdrops and, you know, sort of things that end up in, you know, that are reminiscent of, um, Fabulous Mr. Fox, you know, the miniature work does fascinate him. He likes the cut, the idea of a cutaway world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I like that. I think that's a really interesting view. You know, so the whole escape from the prison thing and it kind of becomes a, 
almost a um, uh, reminiscent of the Bugs Bunny cartoons at times, but I think yeah. that's the same the same era. And also very Zizou-esque, you yeah. know, like the action scene of the, let's say the escape from the prison was the great action moment here, you know, like how that, like, you know, like this is again. Yeah. In a better world, this would happen. Yeah. You know, like, you know, like uh, Bugs has, even the most yeah. harrowing adventures, right? Yeah. Those harrowing horrors. Yeah. Right. Can be yeah. our cartoon like and fun. Right. And I think like Z like where's Zizu kind of I think was trying for that. Yeah. He was trying for that in Zizu, but whether or not they fell flat is I think an open question. And I think it's an open question for the critics. When the first when the movie first came out, uh they didn't like it. It was panned. It has like a 56 on Rotten Tomatoes. But then at like 10 or not quite 10 years. Well, I guess almost over 10 years later, uh, people are looking at it saying, well, actually, there was something here. Yeah. Uh, that was more than that was more than we thought. Whereas in Grand Budapest Hotel, I think these he has matured as a filmmaker where he can do these sequences and not have them fall flat. Yeah. Like yeah, where it's budgets like help. I mean, yeah, yeah, budgets budgets are significantly help. different in these two. Yes. Um, uh, uh, but also, but I do think there was something it's like he had tweaked himself enough. He had become to enough art, artistic maturity to do this as like, okay, this is not a representation of the real world yet you are still going to be emotion you as the audience are still going to be profoundly emotionally engaged yeah. uh with what's going on here um and to me this is uh this is really cool um that he's pulled off and i'm like thinking like and i wonder again if this is maybe this is me making things up and seeing connections where there aren't any but um that. that's actually we're supposed to do that yeah but uh i wonder if this isn't uh another yet another critique about of fascism like saying like like i'm thinking here of like okay what is one thing that fascism does it says this is the order of things this is how this is how the world if we refine it and we and we get rid of all the accidental this is how the world should operate um and it's a horrible perverse vision but it's sort of like fordism elevated to its its up utmost level it's the world of ibm it's the world of ikea where everything fits in the right place exactly uh where and those examples yes they were picked deliberately um you know and what is the what is the way to undermine that world yeah to show a fantasy that doesn't where impossible things happen yet you are still believing in it Mm -hmm. uh it is it is hope against the machine men of that that uh, chaplin film you know that is how that is how you confront fascism that that was walter benjamin's answer anyway you know and it's also like you know you gotta go you got to create, construct a whole new world, a, a simulacra that works to counter the axiomatic of fascism. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if Wes Anderson in Grand Budapest Hotel, in the prison break scene, is doing that. It's like, yes, this is not how people break out of prison. We know that. You want to see how people break out of prison, watch the watch uh the alcatraz movies this is how you can escape from the the prison the imprisoning of the mind that fascism ultimately attempts to do that's Uh, entirely plausible and it makes me think of pan's labyrinth too yeah right so gilmer gilmer 
del Toro and other sort of magical realists in that tradition um, can do that. You know, they can, yeah. they can. And, and I think that's a, so Wes Anderson is employing a form of magical realism, but mm-hmm. it's a sort of toy version, which is yeah. lovely. And you see it with all like the camera setups, which, you know, it's like people don't set up cameras like this. You know, the world, the, the world, you don't look at the world this way, you know, when you're when you're like five foot seven walking through the world. This is not how you see the world. You don't. You, and the, you see it in the camera setups. You see it in the heightened sense of color. You see it in the progression of a plot. Why this is a non-linear progression? It's a stochastic progression that holds together somehow. It's because there's a libidinal investment in it, uh, you know. And I think that that's really, really. Like all of these are gestures against fascism, against uh, the perfected order of fascism, that a fascism expires to and never the perverse perfected order of fascism. I don't want somebody to take me out of quote uh, or out of context, right? Oh, he said the perfect. No, I didn't say that. Um, <laughs> and uh, I think. Uh, yeah, Wes Anderson's this movie really is uh, great. Yeah, uh, it's, it's definitely one of my favorites, and I'm glad you you raised it. Yeah. All right. Uh, so, I guess that kind of draws to an end our time here. Uh, except we need uh, a movie for the next time we talk about. And how are you going to do would... this, man? Because we both contributed this past time. Okay. Um, well, you you call it. I, I feel like I I said Wes Anderson. Uh, so and put us on the page. So then you pick. You. Uh, so no, I do have a, a natural yeah. one to follow, and it, it might be jarring at first, but you'll see. So Wes Anderson's camera composure. I'm glad you ended on that. Is very artificial. Mm-hmm. All his shots are framed very very artificially with a lot of sort of even um and symmetrical stuff going on that's really kind of eye-catching um so i wanted to see a kubrick film uh who is also famous for these shots and i don't think we've done a kubrick film yet um and you know it's a it's 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 one i can't i have to say the shining because um, it is it is a it's really just one of my favorite films um, by Kubrick. Um, if you want to throw in a balancing Kubrick film in there to set it off, that'd be fine. Or we can spend a whole hour on The Shining. I think to spend anything less than a full hour on The Shining would be a disservice to The Shining. Uh, yeah, but I'm I'm thrilled that you suggested Kubrick. I'm f- thrilled that you suggested The Shining. It too, I, I wrote like. I think some of the best pages of my dissertation on The Shining. Uh, so I love it. Uh, and uh, yeah. And then maybe if we could, we could do two Kubricks, but space them out in separate podcasts. Like, Good. so let's just do The Shining and we'll see where that conversation takes us. Uh, ultimately, I'd like to do this like, I don't want a long Christmas break because that's next year. Uh, let's take Yeah. <laughs> Uh, let's try for let's um, do it next week sometime sounds good we'll try to pump these out a little more regularly folks yeah. thank you all for listening if, yes. and if you are still listening to the final bits and uh, thank you Rob <laughs>